Good evening. And I say evening because it's evening here. This is a late Sunday night. It's January 31st. Um, it's February 1st, a whole bunch of other places because uh, the West Coast are the last people to experience uh, today. You guys, some of you guys are in tomorrow already, but I'm here in today. Tomorrow you'll be hearing this. So for some people, that's later today. But for me, it's tomorrow. It's going to be a lot of sleep between me and when you hear this. I'm not sure what difference that makes, but to me, it is notable. This is Secret Skin. My name is Open Mike Eagle. Um, it's been a heavy week. Um, I mean, I don't know, not too heavy. It's been a regular sized week filled with activities. Um, yesterday, me and Baron Vaughn uh, did our show, The New Negroes, as part of Riot Fest. It's a comedy festival here in L.A. And that went over really well. So shout out to Baron. Shout out to the folks at Riot Fest for having us. It was a great event. Uh, we usually do it at the Upright Citizens Brigade here in L.A., the one on Franklin. Uh, it's there monthly. So if you're in the area, you'll have a chance to check that out. Usually it's the last Sunday of the month, but um, I'll keep you posted. I'm really excited about today's show. We have an interview with a guy who I've been a huge fan of a long time. He goes by the name of Jay Zone. Rapper, producer, author, uh, drummer, very accomplished gentleman, and um, one of my inspirations. So it was really awesome to be able to talk to him. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But first, my Scandinavians, Principal Skinners, um, Skintervention Receivers. Um, I've been asking you guys for a few weeks now to submit questions recorded recorded questions people uh typically say them into their phone usually there's some recording app on there or they record them in their home studios and um you can send me questions at omebooking at gmail.com um i got a few in this week just want to get to them before we get to our interview with jay's own the first one comes to us from jefferson wagner and his question is as follows Questions. Hey, Open Mike. My question is, what are a few of your favorite podcasts that you have made guest appearances on? And what are a few of your favorite podcasts to listen to in your free time? Thanks so much. Thank you, Jefferson. Um, favorite podcast that I've been on um, for... And the way I'm going to answer that is going to think about which podcast have I been on that I was a fan of for a long time before I was able to get on. So uh, I'd have to go with WTF with Mark Marin probably is number one. Uh, that was the first podcast I really got into and was really listening to and devouring. Um, so it was an honor and a pleasure to be uh, on that show. I've also enjoyed uh, being on a lot of hip-hop podcasts that my friends do that I also enjoy. So, Kinda Neat with Intuition, uh, Shots Fired with Jeff Weiss and No Can Do. Those are uh, a couple of my favorites. If you go to, if you look me up on iTunes, I like to say I have the, um, the world's sexiest uh, iTunes results page. Because uh, there's music there and there's my podcast there and there's a bunch of podcasts that I've been on. 
Um, also throwing out Wandering Wolf. That's Yoni Wolf's podcast. He's a another friend of mine who does a very enjoyable podcast, and I was happy to be on that one. But um, yeah, I have varied results on my iTunes page. If you uh, look me up on there, um, and you'll find a bunch that I've been on now. In terms of listening pleasure. My life in the last, I would say, four to six months, my audio consumption has been almost exclusively podcasts about professional wrestling. Um, it used to be that I used to listen to a lot of a, a show called Ron and Fez, and after that changed into a show called Bennington, and I still listen to that occasionally. Um, it's That's a radio show. It's not really a podcast. Uh, in terms of downloading episodes of things to listen to on my phone, it's almost exclusively professional wrestling podcasts at this point. My favorite being one called The Writer's Room on the MLW Radio Network. Um, it's hosted by a guy, Alex Greenfield, who used to actually uh, write for WWE. So he talks about his time there and has other writers on. Some of the writers he has on um, used to also write for WWE. So it's by far the podcast that i'm most interested in I also listen to stone cold steve austin's podcast and the cheap heat podcast um with peter rosenberg and and the masked man i listen to this one called msl and sullivan with kevin sullivan who used to uh he used to be a wrestler and he used to be the person who who uh set up the card for wcw back in the day i can go really deep about this i can talk about wrestling podcasts um almost like i should have one that's how much i enjoy listening to and talking to and thinking about professional wrestling uh thanks for the question jeff our next question comes from nicholas morin nicholas morin and uh this is nick's question Hello, Mr. Eagle. My name is Nick. I have two questions. It's a bit greedy, but my first one is how much of your songwriting is done under the influence of medicinal herbs? And my second question, because I'm so greedy, is given the level of success you've had up to this point, the quality of your music and your age as a human being, what are your goals in terms of level of success over the next, say, five years? I know that that first question might be a little bit uh, personal or something that you might no longer want to be a part of your public persona, but I am I am curious, and I hope the second one isn't too uh, hard for you to answer. Let's say that. Again, thanks for the opportunity to send you a question. I very much enjoy your podcast, and please, by all means, come back to Boston as soon as possible. So Nick wants to know how many of my songs I write on weed. I believe that Nick might be on weed. Call me crazy. Um, it, you know, interestingly enough, and um, I do have a medical marijuana card out here in California. Um, I like to imbibe. I'm not a heavy smoker or a consumer. I actually prefer edibles. And, um... You know, it's probably like a week, every like couple times a week, maybe at most. Um, but to answer your question, I don't think I've ever written a song high. Um, I can't ever remember that being a case where I wrote a song high. Uh, I've made quite a few beats high. Um, 
but in terms of actually writing a song i can't remember when i ever was under the influence of uh marijuana i i feel like when i'm in that state um there in my mind there's too many options if that makes any sense like it would be difficult for me to decide which way to go in writing if i was in that state um i believe that when i'm in that state i see more options and and um given that i see more options it's a, it's a lot more difficult for me to proceed and and, and choose which path forward is the best and that's uh literally in terms of like writing something line by line um when i'm under that influence i i, I feel like i would i would question oh well, i can go this way with it or i could also go this way with it and, and i would end up writing 13 songs to the same beat or something it's just not doesn't seem to be very efficient for the level of uh productivity i like to be at now the second question is a little bit harder to answer because um uh, I already feel successful. I mean, I, I just came back from a, a, a European tour. Um, I am, um, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting ready to, you know, actually drop a new project. There's, there'll be some news on that soon. Uh, maybe even this week. That'll be my fifth album, I think. Um, you know, and just, just being able, just being in a position where I can create work. Um, I have people who want to put it out. I have uh, people who want to buy it. Uh, and it's not that it's uh, some insanely huge amount of people, but it, 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 you know, I can definitely see a pattern of growth from where I started to now. And so I already kind of feel successful. And so I'm not sure if what I think of as goals in terms of going forward have to do with uh, any success benchmarks per se. Um, the goal is always to add to the audience so um i'm kind of always looking for higher platforms of exposure for my work but it's hard to say that's the goals because you it's hard to really arrange for those things you kind of just have to be ready when those opportunities arise um i feel like i probably have another five albums in me honestly um i'm not bored with the craft or anything at all there are other things that i want to do and other things that i'm working on other kinds of um entertainment will say that uh that uh that i've started to uh started to move in the direction of if that makes sense um but i think at the end of the day all of it will be to help build a platform higher for the music i think that music is is uh what i like to do and what i've been doing and and i would hope to continue to do that more and more um I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm not quitting anytime soon, Nick. <laughs> I'm gonna stick around. Um, and I and I know you didn't say that, but I think when you put in the factor of age, and uh, I'm 35 years old, and I turned 35 in November, and um, you know, rap and most entertainment is usually a young person's game, so there's always that. Uh, I guess there's internally there's a little bit of a voice it's like okay well all right how long can we keep this going and i think externally there's expectations for uh, how long somebody might be able to uh keep hip-hop 
specifically a viable outlet but i don't i don't you know i think that part of my my mission statement if if uh if ever i was called upon to make one would be that uh believe that the form of hip-hop uh, can expand and it is expanding there's a lot of older heads making hip-hop right now on a lot of different levels uh independent mainstream and otherwise and uh i believe that the form is maturing and i believe that uh ultimately as long as each artist is being true to their own experience it'll expand the form and um you know since i'm not necessarily chasing the uh chasing the disposable income of teenagers I feel like I have a little bit more leeway. But uh, thanks for the question, Nick. You've caused me to do some reflection. Questions. Now, this open at this point is uh, about 10, 11 minutes long. Um, and I want to move it along and get to this interview, which, like I said earlier, I'm very excited about. Uh, it's an honor to have um, this gentleman on my podcast he goes by the name of jay zone like i said he's a rapper producer and author um i started listening to his stuff probably around the year 2000 uh when when um internet music sharing was at its peak uh he was one of the guys who i discovered alongside edon and really digging into mf doom's uh catalog and in my head they were all linked not that they ever really like worked with each other but all three of them uh, you know all New York based all rappers and producers that kind of had their own sound apart from everything else going on in independent hip hop or underground hip hop at the time which was you know a lot of derivative stuff a lot of people sounding like other people a lot of people just being super anti-mainstream just for the sake of these three cats all had a real individual sound um, Jay Zone was a guy who was an underground guy, but was known for having uh, lyrics that espoused some of the values of mainstream rap too. So, uh, some of it was, you know, some of his stuff was about getting money. Um, you know, when his albums like "Pimps Don't Pay Taxes" and "A Job Ain't Nothing But Work." Um, but interestingly enough, um, after making music that was really groundbreaking and really interesting. Uh, and and maybe because of some of the uh, the subject matter, he didn't get some of the acclaim that a lot of those other guys got. And uh, at some point, uh, you know, I would imagine around the time the Internet downloading was at his peak, uh, selling records became really hard for him. Uh, and he actually quit. And he goes into detail about when he actually quit hip hop. And uh, coming out of that, he wrote a book called Root for the Villain, which which is all about him having failed in the music industry. Uh, I haven't read the book. I can't read it, and I told him why. <laughs> You'll hear that exchange in the interview as well. But um, he's a lot to talk about. He's had a, a really long, interesting career. And uh, I met him at his place in Queens and uh, was down in his studio um uh, with his drum set and all his equipment. It was super ill. It was a great experience. Um, once again, really happy to have him on the show. And here it is, my talk with Jay Zone. And it's a secret skin. I, I was seeing something where 
Rob Bass was still doing shows. And I know his hits, he had two. He had It Takes Two and Joy and Pain. There it is. But he's working. <laughs> you know, like, you can't be mad at him. He's working. You know, those um, aren't even my favorite Rob Bass songs. I, you know I, could, I wish I could tell you that I heard more than, heard those, more two. than those two. Right? <laughs> I wish I could tell you I heard more. I'm a nerd like that. So I, I, I was all about album cuts. Right, the on deep albums. cuts. Yeah, the deep cuts on one oh, hit wonder albums. Like, I'll quote oh you all the rhymes. I'm, I'm that type of cat. But, um, you know, like I was like, my man lives in Florida. He was like, "Yo, Rob Bass just doing a show down here." And That's crazy. I was like, "Oh, word!" Uh, and Houdini, maybe. Uranium plants, labor camps, uranium on tobacco plants, secret handshakes, plague and intentional avalanches, spread of AIDS, ISIS, the sea of far contingency, fucking shit up overseas, the Pope's down, you're down on your knees, the government's your enemy, it's drug dependency, it's a guilty plea fee, it's the Bilderberg Committee, international currency, with barcodes replacing paper money, it's the metallic strip on your driver's license, genetic science, it's a crush rebel defiance, plant racial riots, it's control of the population, one world, no more nations, protest creations, I was reading, I think an excerpt Book. Now, I, we're going to get to the book in a second. I haven't read the book because I'm afraid it's going to make me quit. <laughs> but we'll get to that in a second. But I remember reading an excerpt from it, uh, and you were talking about the show in L.A. Yeah. That, that made you uh, want to hang it up, basically. Mm-hmm. And I was at that show. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was at that show, and it and it was... It was emptier than I thought it should be too. I had just kind of moved out there, so I was like really mm-hmm. excited to see an artist that I uh, that I like come through town. Um, tell me, tell me about that show from your experience. Because I never blew up and made it big, I always knew in my mind that the rap shit wouldn't be forever, and mm-hmm. I knew that okay, this is gonna dry up, it's gonna end. So I was, I could accept that, I could handle it. I was getting older, I was like, I had just turned thirty, so I wasn't really tripping about not being part of the rap shit anymore. But I always saw myself as a musician, right? So I said, I'm going to try to find another outlet for my music. So what I did was I was DJing a lot, um, doing production work behind the scenes. I had just started teaching college around that time. What did you teach in college? Uh, I taught like an independent study for okay. production. Um, that was my first It's like hip hop production? Yeah, okay. and just production in general uh, at my alma mater, which is SUNY Purchase. And I had started that like September of 07, which is around the time of that show. But long story short, like all that stuff... I had basically kind of fell back on performing. And the only shows I did that whole year, I went to Australia in the spring and it was real dry. Like the shows were not well attended. The promoter ate his shirt. Hmm. You know, I did it, but in my mind, I kind of knew it was coming to a close. So, you know, um, but, you know, music, like the teaching thing was going on. I was DJing a little bit. The music thing wasn't going too well that year. Like things weren't taking off the way I felt you know, that they would. And I was kind of just in an odd space. And then an agency hit me up. I forgot the name. And they were like, we want to book you for one show in San Diego and one in LA at the Knitting Factory. And they offered me good money. Nice. And I was like, man, I never, you know, it was good money. And I was like, damn, like, I'm not really hot right now. I haven't had a record out in a while. I'm not really. So, you know, they were like, yo, someone requested, they said somebody suggested that you'd be good. They had no idea who I was. Okay the agency they just heard that jay's own is a good show. i was like okay and they put up a flyer for the san diego show and they had a picture of project pad or somebody they didn't even know what i looked like wow <laughs> and they used a picture of somebody else i guess maybe they googled something and, and then one, that popped up and they one just of them used yeah wow. and i saw the flyer and it wasn't it was a jay's own flyer but it was a picture of somebody else and i was like Damn, like they're not even pay. I was like, they, like that's. I was like, damn, they don't give a fuck. They're just throwing away money. And so I went to San Diego. 
uh, I played my, my partner, Dick Stallion, who was on a lot of those records with me. He had just moved out there coincidentally and he was going to school in San Diego and he played the show with me. And it was it was a little better than the L.A. show. There might have been about 15 people there, but they were all like 17, 18, 19. Okay. And after the show, you know, they invite us back to the crib. You know how indie rap is. Like, there's no barrier between the fans yeah, and the artists. Like, they could just walk up to right? you. You know what I mean? So <laughs> we're back at these kid, these college kids' crib, and they're smoking weed. And I remember, I'll never forget, we were listening to Checkmate. That was Jada Kiss's disc record, Back to 50. Yeah, yeah, I had yeah. Ne- and, that was, and I was like, whoa, Jada's killing it. But, but me and him are sitting there looking at each other like, yo, we're too old for this shit. Like, these kids are like... 12 years younger than us you know and we're 30 and they're 18 like if if somebody's 37 and somebody's 49 that's not bad but 18 and 30 is a little awkward yeah you know and we were just he was just like yo this is the last time i do this i can't do this no more i was like damn so all right so i, I was like you want to come to la with me tomorrow he's like sorry brother I just can't do this anymore. Like, like right then. Yeah, he was done. just because he was gonna drive to L.A. with me. He was like, nah. You know, he just said we're too old for this shit. And I was like, damn. So I drove up to L.A. by myself to do the L.A. show, and I was staying with Danger Mouse. And he was like, yo, I got people from Mad TV coming through, X Y Z. You know, all these A-listers that he yeah, knew. Yeah, like, yeah. they all want to check your show out. I'm like, bet. So I get to the Ninja Factory. Oh. The place is packed, 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 packed. There was this opening group. I don't remember who they were. They were dope I don't too. Who they were either. But they, they must they look very young. They, what I guess was they were college students at maybe UCLA or something, and they probably had all their friends come. I think it was a pay-to-play show for them. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Yeah. I, it was either pay-to-play or it was like you bring X a number of people. And then, yeah, yeah. And then you, you can get on the set. And they brought their whole school or whatever with them. It was just full of younger millennial kids, just like super young. and you know, But it was packed, and I was like, wow. this!" I was like, man, Stallion's going to be mad he didn't come. This right, is going right. to be crazy. And we're backstage, me and Bilal Bashir, who was um, with Divine Styler. And okay. he, he was Ice-T's producer. He was DJing for me because he's a friend of mine. So me and Bilal, Danger Mouse, some cats from Mad TV. You know, we were all backstage like laughing and telling jokes and, you know, getting ready for my show. Getting amped up. And I'm like, you know, they got off stage and then, you know, the DJ was playing so you couldn't really hear any crowd. You know, there was just music going on. And then I kind of take a peek out there and everybody's gone. I mean, everybody. It was empty. Completely empty. And I was like, oh, shit. And I had to go on in like 15 minutes. I was like, damn, this ain't looking good. And, you know. I don't know if you had a green army coat on that day, but I remember. A, a, I think I did. Okay, then I remember. And I you. had long. I had long locks. Though. I remember. Yeah. I remember you, because that's how you had on a robe, was. right? Yeah, and uh, and, and, a, and a suit and a and a headband. Yeah, a headband like a dollar, a dollar. Yeah, yeah. yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I remember, and I got up on that stage, and there was like five people there. Yeah. And I did about three songs, and then something in my head just clicked. It was like, no. And I started thinking like, yo, man, it's going to be mad late. What am I going to eat for dinner? Mm. So I'm doing the songs and all I'm thinking about is dinner. <laughs> like, yo, how am I going to get something to eat? And then I go over to the set. Like After like the third or fourth song, I go over to Bilal. I take a pen off the turntable and I scratch out five songs. I'm mm. like, fuck this shit. These yeah. five songs, we ain't even going to waste our time. We're going to do the last four songs. I'm getting the fuck out of here. I got the, the last four songs felt like three years. Uh. Like every song, you know, like you tried to do call and response and there's like nothing. nothing. 
and nobody gives a fuck. You know, Danger Mouse has some people there. Like, there's more people backstage than there is in the crowd. Shit. So I was just embarrassed more than anything. But I had been, I'd say from like 05 to 07, every show I did, besides the Norris Barkley show at, at, uh, at what you would call it, at CBGB's, I'd say 98% of my shows were just like that. Damn. So, you know, part of you is like, yo, just keep grinding. You get... And part of you is like, yo, I've been at this for t- almost 10 years. The last two years have been nothing but this. And it's and it's, it's showing a decline, not like it just it always been that yeah, way. Yeah, no, it, it, it showed a noticeable decline. I just turned 30. I wanted, you know, you, you start getting subcon- you know, self-conscious. Like, yo, am I making a decent living? Am I supporting myself? Can I, if I want to make some moves, can I make those moves? And I was just looking at me just... Check to check. And, I, and most of all, never mind the money. Am I happy? Right. And I, I, was, I was unhappy. I was miserable. Like, I, I hated doing shows. I hated do. I liked making beats and stuff. I even liked making records. I just didn't like being on the road. So after I finished, I remember I, you came. It might I think it was you who came up to me. You were like, yo, good I, set. I gave you a pound. I walked out. <laughs> got in the car. I drove. And I just said, I'm never doing that shit again. And yeah. to this day, I've done one show. Shit, real life snuck up on me. I'm a new eyeglass prescription for being Spent my twenties rocking shows, Mel burned to Copenhagen while my peers stood single file for assimilation and it all just stopped. Now here I am, 36, still living like I'm 22 and loving it. The real world is knocking at the door. In my 30s, treat it like a Jehovah Witness and don't it. Man, fuck this trap career, dead, can't hide. Time to get a job, no experience at all in a nine to five. Seeing from my perspective that the J Zone character kind of went along an arc. Like when you started, I feel like it was a little bit more political, like a little more quote yeah. unquote conscious. Yeah. Talk about the arc a little bit of how the character changed. Well, the character change, my first album was just the J Zone character hadn't developed. It right. was my senior project for school. It wasn't meant to come out. For SUNY Purchase? Yeah. Wow. Graduate. So I just did the album and that was my life at the time, like watching MTV and seeing Diddy and Mace with yeah. their jerseys, putting raising the roof and popping Cristal. Now, when you're not making any money and you're just living in college and stuff, you say, oh, they're sellouts. They're not for the hip hop culture. You know, so like that's that's your world. Right. You know, you're dating your girlfriend on campus. That's in your world. Uh, you have opinions on politics and stuff. That's in your world. But you're not really out there surviving. You're not doing shows yet. That's just you raw. Um, but then like when I had to start doing shows, I was like, I was so nervous. Like I needed something to help me ease into doing shows. And the character, when you get the crowd laughing, the audience laughing, it's, you, you feel looser. Right. So, you know, the J zone character was just to help me break out of my shell. Cause I was really shy. Okay. Um, but then, you know, when I got out in the real world and, you know, was dating and doing different things, you know. Doing shows with underground rap guys, realizing it's no different than Diddy and Mace. They just right. have no money, but exactly. they have the same superiority complex <laughs> in the underground. So when you're dealing with that, I just, I just kind of like became the fuck you rapper. You know what I'm saying? And and just like making a mockeryish lampoonery, you know, and just the comedy just helped me cope with it and and made it easier for me to perform. But then I think with with that character, when it it was it worked when Huggy and she were there because they brought different angles to it to balance it out hmm. you know what i'm saying it's like you know you have a cup of lime juice you put a little apple juice in it and it mellows it out and right. you put a little beet juice in it and it warms it up it's like juicing it's like the same thing like a combination makes it digestible it's chemistry basically yeah. yeah chemistry even though we were all different it it, it was like it, it worked as a stew but then when they left it was kind of like 
that street hard element, that real don't fuck with me element that she brought and the, the social consciousness and political consciousness that Hug brought disappeared, it became comedy albums. Right. And I was so far gone into my character that I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't go back to the two Madre thing. So I rolled that out, you know, and people just got sick of it and I got sick of it myself. You know, eventually, like, whether I was DJing, whether I was rapping, whether I was making beats, doing my mix show, I mean, I was trying to show, like, hey, I'm a producer, I'm a DJ, I'm a musician, I do other things, and I couldn't break, so I realized I had to leave it alone, hmm. and I just, I just kind of bounced because it was making me so unhappy. And, and this is like 07? 07, 08, 09. 08, 09 is when I bounced. Okay. Was like, there, now, was there some grand statement? Or you just kind of just stopped. I mean, I made the Live at the Liquor Store album, Chief Chinchilla, the malt liquor commercials, Jingles album, and you know it sold horribly. It was like 13, 14 copies in the first month of wow. iTunes. The CDs did all right, but digitally it didn't do well. The video got a, a fair number of hits, but just the album, you know, the production on that record was pretty crazy. Like, I was really going in on it, but because it was like the Sane Eyes thing, it was like, oh, the gimmick, the shtick again. And, I see. I was like, you know what, I'm done. Like, I can't run from it. You know, so when I came back to music four years later, you know, because you know how you know how fans are. Like, yo, man, that's they act like it's uh, a lot of times people act like you're being ungrateful or you're being arrogant by not revisiting your old music. And it's not that I'm better than it or it's not good music or anything, but it's just that place I was in was not a good place. Like, I didn't I didn't like being in that place. Give me a light, nigga. What, what, was, what was those four years like in between? Ooh. Like, so when, because when you stepped away, were you, you thinking it's going to be permanent? Like, this is going to yeah, be Yeah, I was done. Yeah. There wasn't no, like, let me take a break. Like, 09. I remember I did a show with Peyton Locke, who's Edon's yeah, man, yeah, yeah. and um, and uh, Lyft. Yeah. We all went over and did a festival in like May of 2009, and they were talking about their new projects, and they were like, yo, what you working on? I'm like, well, I had that project in 08, the liquor store, but like maybe six, six, seven, eight months had gone by, and I hadn't um, made any new music. Like I you sat down to beat. Nothing. I, I, tried, I tried to. I kept sitting down. I went record. I remember one day in like March of 09, I went record shopping all day. And I came home with a big stack of records and I was sitting there. And it's not that I couldn't come up with nothing. I just, I was bored. Mm -hmm. I was just kind of like, so I'm going to hook this up, do this. What am I going to do? Rhyme over it, shop it to somebody, not get paid. But, <laughs> right. but it wasn't even really about money. I was just bored. Right. I just like the process was kind of like. I just, I had no passion for it because I, I'm, I was so busy thinking about survival. You know, like I got bills, like I'm not making any money right now. You know, and like music is never about money. Music's about passion, you know, but like if you're not passionate about it and your money's fucked up. <laughs> yeah. There's no, there's no motivating factor. That's a sign. Thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, I've made music when I ain't had a dime, but I still made it because of the feel, the joy it brought. Mm -hmm. But like, if I'm sitting there and I'm bored, I really don't give a shit. I'm just like, I, I'm doing this because I know how to do it, but I don't really want to be here. I'd rather be covering a basketball game because that was the other job I had. Right, writing? Yeah, okay. I was a sports report, high school sports reporter. 
pace sucked, but at the time I enjoyed it because I felt like it, it gave me some validation. Like there was some appreciation for what I, I was helping kids get into college and shit. Wow. So, you know, I'm like, that kind of replaced music for a while because like, okay, I'm not getting paid, but... But it's rewarding. It's rewarding to help some kid out, get some attention. And, you know, I always played sports in high school. I liked it. So it was something, it was meant to be a distraction until I figured out what was next. 2010, I was working 80 hour weeks to the point where like my body was starting to physically deteriorate. And um, at the end of the year, I just said like, I'm gonna die physically if I keep doing this. And I had, I still harbored some of that bitterness about mm -hmm. music because music really changed around that time. Like the whole thing changed over. And I was like, I gotta get some of these thoughts out. So I started putting together the book just to keep me sane. Because mm -hmm. all my life, I always had a creative outlet, whether it was writing, music, Something. Had you always written all your life? Yeah. Well, I started writing in about seventh or eighth grade. Okay. But I always had a creative outlet because I was always musical. But the thing is, you want to kill an artist, whether it's paying your bills or not, like strip away the strip away creating from somebody's life. And that's the quickest way to kill right. a natural artist. Like whether you're, you know, sometimes music ain't paying the bills, you're doing something else, but you come home, you make your beats, you write, you work on you. Those projects keep, allow you to get through the workday. But I was just working straight jobs with no creative outlet, none. Like I would go pump iron and then go to sleep. So I had no creative outlet and that really made me a bitter person. Um, and I just said, I, I have to create something. I have to, whether it's music, right? I got, Cause I even stopped writing. I was writing for basketball. By the time I came home, my eyes were so burnt from like, I did a data entry job for eight hours. So staring at a computer screen. Wine dance is an hour away. So two, three hours of driving, seven, eight hours at a computer screen, two hours watching a game, and an hour writing an article at 11 o'clock at night. My eyes couldn't take it anymore. So I quit the gym job. Then I quit wine. Little by little, I started, and more serious I got about the book, the more jobs I had to quit. Mm. But then as you know, money got thick, tight. So it was like, damn you know and then i tried to go get some courses to get certified to teach i couldn't you know there was a loophole i couldn't get through you know during um, this whole era this whole time are people hitting you up for musical shit no nobody is. no okay the, the the funny thing is yeah from 2009 to 2011 like all of 2010 i got no inquiries mm for anything i had stuff that i had done in 07 08 that dragged out and it finally came out like Cunning Linguist, Cannabis. I had two beats come out around that time for them, but those were records that were done in like 07, right. 08, and they just dragged. You know, I did a record for Lyft, mm -hmm. and they came. They all came out at that time, so people got the impression that, that I was, was still, still doing working. shit here and there, but I wasn't working at all. I remember the... Uh, Lonely Island. Juggernauts. You did a beat on their that, second album. Yeah, but that was 06, 05, oh, okay, so okay, I was still okay, active. Okay, but. Word. You know, but like Lonely Island, Mr. Lift, Cunnilingus, Cannabis, like those are all joints that came out around 2009, 10. And they were things that were done in 06, 07, mm -hmm. 08. So, but I would say 2009, 2010, I, definitely 2010, I didn't make one beat. Mm, the whole year. The whole year. Wow. 2009, I might have made something in like February and just threw it out. But nothing for 09 and nothing for 2010. Wow. And um, the, the first time somebody reached out was Hoslow in 
spring of 2011 when I was finishing the book and I did that remix yeah. for, for, for him. That was exciting. That's that's my man too, man. So that was really yeah, exciting to see. Yeah. Family. So he reached out to me because he reached out to me. I'll never forget this. The night of the LA Knitting Factory show. I went for a drive. I went back to Danger Mouse crib. I'm checking my email. I got an email from Haas that night. That's crazy. Because Travis, who used to run uh, Wake Your Daughter Up blog, mm-hmm. was cool with both of us. He gave Haas my email. And Haas asked me for, that night. He was like, yo, I'm a big fan. You know, I'm, I want, I'm interested. And that was when I had just gotten off that stage. So I kind of was, I was polite about it, but I was, like, was, I was like, listen, man, like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not in that place. And then, you know, four years later, he wrote me again. You know, he was like, listen, yada, yada, yada. And I was like, this cat still check for me. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just felt it was genuine. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, it wasn't like, yo, let me just try to get zoned and see if I can get a free beat out of him. But, you know, a lot of cats. But I just like, yo, he's gen- genuinely interested in my work. And I just said, let me go down there. I'm like, well, let me hear the original. And then that kind of triggered something in me. Because um, around that time, like 2011 in the spring, like when I had quit the wine dance, the school job, Prince Paul had hit me up mm. then. Yeah. And he was like, I want to do a group called the Slave Masters with <laughs> Freddie Fox and R.A. the Rugged Man and God. me and you produce it. Wow. Now, I was working at Wine Dance High School about to quit and Paul doesn't live far from there. So I remember I went over there after work. He was laughing. Like, yo, you got your shirt, your tie, your badge on, your, your khaki pants. You look like <laughs> you're 70 years old. I'm like, oh, <laughs> shut up, man. You know, and, and we were supposed to do that. So I actually started fooling with some beats for that Slave Masters project, I made like two. <laughs> so, and I was like, ah, this is whack, whatever. And then the project fell apart, so I was okay. like, ah, fuck this music shit. Like, I'm yeah. done anyway. And then Haas hit me up that summer, you know, and, and I did one for him, and then people, it came out right when the book came out, yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah. people were talking about it, but I still wasn't really fully about the music. And then, I don't know what possessed me. I, I just, my, it was my dad, actually. He was just like, yo, you're a musician. You've been a musician since you were like knee high to a duck. Like you got to do something. Yeah. You can't just continue. You know, the book comes out. It's great. But what's the follow up? Another book? And I was like, I ain't going to write another book. You know, I guess I'll just blog for Ego Trip and see what happens. He's like, no, you got, you know, do something musical. Figure it out. <laughs> yeah, chief. You know, sometimes I wonder that myself. I mean, if you were born in the 70s and still doing this hip-hop shit, you know what they say about you, right? Oh, that's nigga. Yeah. You know, you're basically the 40-year-old in the club. The baby boomer that won't retire. I mean, give it the fuck up already. What the fuck you doing? You still sitting around here dreaming, man? Young man's gang. So how did, I mean, let's talk about the book now. Uh, like I said, I haven't read it. I've, I've seen lots of excerpts, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm sure I will one day. But I mean, I'm always, yeah. I'm always tenuously walking the line of trying to make this shit work. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> but um, so you you started kind of chronicling your uh, experience in yeah. the industry. So what pushed you to actually go ahead and complete an entire book when you're coming from the space of not having really been creative at all? Uh, I just, I just had like, uh, we're. I always say, like, people always say, oh, the younger generation, fuck these new millennials, yada, yada, yada. You know, it's generation, rap's generational. We right. look at the young kids with this swag boy shit and we laugh and stuff. Like, But being around those kids sometimes puts things in perspective. And when I was and when you were working in high school, sure. I was working in Wine Dance High School okay. and I did a panel about hip hop with Groove B. Chill huh. from House Party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Groove, uh, uh, DJ uh, B, the, the Bilal, the DJ. 
he's an alum of Wine Dance. Okay. That group, Daryl Mitchell, they all went to Wine and they brought him back for Black History Month. They did a hip hop panel and this guy named Jesse Serwer, who's a writer. So me, Jesse, and Bilal did a panel about hip hop with some of the kids who were in the school who were in the music, about 100 kids in the auditorium. We were talking about music and music business and they got into the Little Kim, no, the, the, the Little Kim versus Nicki Minaj mm -hmm. thing. And then a big argument, fight, not a fight, but like a screaming match so broke spirited. out. And then, that, you know, we were like, oh, what do we start? And then you're realizing rap is generational. So then after that, uh, after that uh, thing that we did, that panel, a kid walked up to me. He was like, yo, man, he was actually smart for his age. He was like, yo, I like what you were saying about music, you know. And we were just talking about music and stuff. And, you know, he was like, yeah, man, when I get out of here, I'm going to make me a rap record and I'm going to blow. I'm going to have tons of chicks and, yo, I'm going to have me a car. Like literal? Yeah, like 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 what we would say joking around, yeah, he yeah, was yeah. saying for real. How, and how old is this kid? He's like 15, 16. Okay. And I was sitting there saying, like, people really think the music business is fair. Like they, really, <laughs> like, they really think that if you work really hard and you're good at your craft and you, you just dedicate yourself I think it's a meritocracy that eye of the tiger shit yeah. one day I'm gonna make it yeah. and they have no idea that there's a whole bunch of factors and they and nobody has any idea how big of a role luck plays in whether Timing. you make it or not timing because it, it seems luck. like so much of your story that you're telling me right now is about just like bad timing yeah it's bad yeah. a lot of it was bad timing yeah you know, the whole big timers pimp thing, like the irony, like that became bigger became when the hipster huge. thing exploded in right. 07, 08, you know, but I was doing it in 01, but I genuinely liked that music. Right. But a lot of things, you know, I did early and then later on, it was like, people always tell me like, yo, if this record came out today, but that right. doesn't make me feel any better. Right. You know, like, well, the record is out, buy it. <laughs> iTunes, Bandcamp, buy the shit, you know what I mean? But, but, um. You know, I was just shocked how many people really think they have no idea. And, you know, and people would like reach out like and say shit like, yo, why don't you just give your a tape of your beats to Dre? You know, like people had like, no. All right. <laughs> like you could just do that. Like you just got. And I was like, and at that time I, I had read DMX's book, LL's book. I read a lot of rappers books and I'm like, yo, everybody's like has the same beginning. They're all in the projects, financially fucked up, like on drug, like life is fucked up. Then they, they work their way up and then boom, all of a sudden they become a rap star. Now they live in a mansion with a fly ass bitch and three kids at the end. <laughs> and I'm like, well, what about motherfuckers who like it all fell apart? They had to go try to get a job. What about people who couldn't find a job and they OD'd on drugs and fell off the face of the earth? What about people who worked for years and they're still working? They're 40 and they haven't gotten a memo that maybe the dream ain't gonna happen, but they right. don't give up on the dream. So all these stories are not booked music biographies are only written by superstars right. because publishing companies want to sell books. So they want to target musicians who have succeeded in some way so that they can continue to sell the dream. Mm. Like, yo, I could be successful just like him or her. And I'm like, yo, no one's ever written a book perspective of somebody who failed in the music business. Right. Not as a musician, but failed in the music business. Or somebody who just, it fell apart or they lost their passion. And the end that's the end like right. it fell apart the end now i'm working a job making eight dollars an hour and yada 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 it's so depressing and it is. nobody wants to hear it so it's like scared straight like you don't want to hear it so there's a reason I, I didn't i was like damn nobody ever wrote a book like that and and at the time like that when i all this was going on right when I, all my music got pulled from itunes 
uh, Fat Beats destroyed all my vinyl and hold up why did they take it off of itunes <clears throat> because the company i was dealing with just said like your stuff isn't selling the way we thought we want to put our energy into artists that create more revenue i'm like well it's not costing you anything in exactly space. that's like, weird and they were like well it's just not moving we don't want to carry it damn so they dropped it and then a couple of days later fat beats uh destroyed i, I just i destroyed the vinyl with fat beats signed off on that came home that night and there was a letter that had come saying that i have to uh call them and you know they terminated my distri digital distribution and then the next day i found out that my wikipedia page got taken off wikipedia like somebody wiped it out they said it was like a phony it just wasn't valid and my page got wiped out and i was like damn like if that's not and then and then in the midst of all that i had i dj'd a show for like son of berserk leaders of the new school like it was all around christmas of 2010 while I was working a wine dance, and I got, I DJ, granddaddy, I, I DJ for everybody. I DJ the whole night, me and Johnny Juice, but I DJ the night, and I got paid like 30 bucks. Mm. So I'm sitting there, you know, I had to put 20 in the tank. God. So I'm sitting there with 10 bucks, Wikipedia's gone, records got destroyed, <laughs> no, music is off digital, you can't find it. So if you put my name in there, like in, in Google, all you found was like just old, random articles or like UGHH store things or wow. <laughs> like there was nothing and I was like god damn I'm like yo there's people going through this but nobody ever talks about it right. so I was like you know and I knew going in that that's not a commercially viable story nobody wants to hear that story because like yo you didn't make it why do I hear from you and I was like damn should I even put this book out like will anybody give a fuck right. like I don't even have a profile anymore like Jay Zone is dead so like who wants to hear from somebody who's dead because they're just going to say oh he's just mad he's bitter sour grapes so I I, I, I was working on the book and then I kind of just stopped for a minute you know my, my pub, uh, a friend of mine is a literary agent she she was working the book and she they all said they go this is a great book but nobody knows who the fuck he is right and I, I was getting all the rejection letters and, you know, like I was just talking to my dad. I remember 2010-11, it was Christmas break that last week. I just said I need to get away and clear my head because I was in a bad space. I went down to Florida, chill with Pops, and he was just like, listen, you got to tell that story because you got kids, you know, who, who think they're going to be in the business. You got people who think it's all about hard work and right. all this, that, the other. You know, you have people talking about, yeah, you got a tour. It's all about now that records don't sell, everybody's talking about touring. They don't realize how hard it is to tour. Especially especially if your record ain't selling. Yeah, <laughs> you know I mean? exactly. Like touring, I always hate when people say, you got a tour. Like, I couldn't get on tours. So I did the Chitlin Circuit because that was all I could. At the time, I just wanted to do shows. I felt I had to do shows. Right. So I was killing myself on the, So I wanted to show people. You know, because people, you got all these industry bobbleheads. Yo, it's all about touring and merch, branding, marketing. They use all these stupid words. The bottom line is have the right product at the right time, get lucky, know the right people. Boom, you're on your way. Yeah. How did it end up getting published after all the rejection? I published letters? it myself. Oh, I didn't even know that. I was working all them jobs. When I realized how much money I was going to need, I started working more and more. I, I was stacking dough. <laughs> My car died. That was a setback. I had to get another car so I could get to work <laughs> to make more money. Like, you know, 2010, 11, it was like, I was like, hey, man, you know, I was like the hey, man guy, like 13 <laughs> jobs. Like, that's, I was like about grinding out money. 
like anyway like i didn't have time to go back to school to make more money like i just said i gotta get quick money now 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 i was selling shit i sold half my record collection Damn. i sold gear um like I, I sold a lot of shit to get extra money i was work i was hustling and working my ass off yeah. you self-publish it and then how is it received how does it roll out um i basically had the book done um i was trying to figure out what to do with it i was talking to self and he just said like yo you might want to hire a publicist and i was like ah oh, this industry shit i don't want to go back to fucking publicists you know, he was just like no matt conaway he did my 1999 album he's 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 dope and i knew matt from back in the day so i hit him up and he's like yo this is a great idea we're gonna help you roll this out so i've just paid him you know, thinking like, oh man, I hope I didn't. And Matt did a really good job. Like he got it in a couple of places, got it reviewed. And what happened was, I, I had that voice with Ego Trip, so right. I just published a couple of the chapters. And when I published that chapter, it was about when rappers have to get day jobs, it went nuts. Okay, like because uh, it's controversial chapter and quite not controversial, but like I'm I'm very. That's one chapter. The second half of the book, I'm very outspoken with my opinions. The first half, I'm just telling the story. But I'm just giving you a rundown of what my life was like mm -hmm. trying to find a job and support myself after being in music for so long. Questlove wound up giving me a whole lot of Twitter. He was like, yo, y'all need to read this and while you're at it, go back and buy this man's music. Damn. And I was like, that's the shit that I needed in 2003. <laughs> you know what I mean? Timing once again. Timing once again, <laughs> you know? Damn. And um, the book wound up doing better than all my albums. You know, but then it, it prompted me. But the funny thing about the book is it was like a high. Mm -hmm. It was like you were smoking something crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. like the book was like, oh shit, all of a sudden people are talking about me. Again. Yo, it's a great book. It's so honest. That's the realest shit. I ain't never read a book in my life. And that's the first book I read. Like, <laughs> you're getting all this shit. You know, Quest Love, RJ. And all of a sudden, all my old peers from back in the day are reaching out like, yo, you're telling my story. And I'm like, see, other uh. people are going through this too, but nobody wants to talk about it. You know what I'm saying? And I was like, oh, so then I got this voice of reason type of thing going on where people, you know, but it was like behind the scenes, I was still struggling. Like the right. book did well, you know, financially I did all right. But after about a year when it died down, I said, well, I'm just keep writing for Ego Trip, blogging, doing everything. That shit doesn't pay. Right. So after a year, you know, I still got my sports reporter job, but that's like peanuts. So it was like a financial high as well as it was. Like it was a high, high all around. I see. I would say from November of 2011 to the summer of 2012, like I played sound set because of it. Like, yeah. oh, yo, we, you know, your book's doing well. Like I heard you're DJing. You want to do a DJ set? So I opened up for premiere in the, in the tent. So I was getting a lot of DJ gigs because I was DJing and, you know. It was just like the book, the DJing, like it was kind of intertwined, but I wasn't making any new music. Right. And then what happened was when that shit died down, I was back in the same position. Right. I was like, yo, I ain't making no money. You know, I had started playing drums as a hobby, but it was just because my dad was like, you got to get some music in your life. So I, I had some drums and I was practicing drums, but I was like, I didn't have nothing serious going mm -hmm. on. And it all just melted like early 2013. I went to a career uh, Queens Library has these career fairs where mm -hmm. you go and they look at your resume and tell you what kind of work you can get and they would just like they basically laughed me out of there. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, "Well, Old Man Entertainment, like who can whose company is mine? What well, can you verify? What is this?" It, uh, 
have you had any like traditional jobs? And I was like, well, like, well, you were here for two months, here for six months. You know, they're like, you have a degree in music. I mean, there's not much we can do for you. Uh, and I was, they were like, well, uh, edible arrangements. They do like wreaths and cakes and things for parties. Like they're like, well, edible arrangements needs a driver for the Valentine's Day shift. Jesus. So on Valentine's Day, uh, it's, it's like from like 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. They need people to deliver flowers all around Queens. So I went to the orientation for that like uh -huh. two days before. And I was sitting there and everybody was like a college student and I was like the older guy, you know, and I was like, well, you're the one with the car so you could do the deliveries. And I was like, well, how much is it an hour? They're like 10 bucks an hour, but you got to feed the meters. Now this is Forest Hills with the muni meter. The cops are waiting to get you. So, you know, I did the math and, you know, t with tips like 10 hour, a 10 hour shift, I would probably wind up making about 80 bucks when it was done. Jesus. Like, it, you know, no gas money, just straight, or like 60 bucks or something. And I was like, I was like, word. And I just, I just, the, the day I was, the day before I was supposed to go in, I called them up. I lied. I said, yeah, I was in a real bad accident. My car's fucked up. I'm not going to be able to make it. Wow. And I just said, I'm not going to do that. And I just, I just came downstairs. I had been really working hard with the drums. And I just said, let me just start putting some music together and see what happens. And I was able to incorporate what I was doing with drums into my production. I'm like, wow, this sounds a little bit refreshed from what I was doing before. And I was like, what if I just start making songs instead of all that Captain Backslap and Lucy Lou and all that shit? What about if I just rhyme about what I'm going through? Mm. So I went through the whole thing. Like, yo, people who knew my music then are probably gonna be like, oh, he's all adult and he's all sick. But like, what if I do it with the, with some humor? Right. And what if I take some of those some of those book chapters? Like, Gadget Ho was a book chapter. Um, you know, Trespasser, the Gentrification, that was a chapter. I was like, some of these would make good songs and nobody's done them. Mm -hmm. So what about I just play around? So I went to the library and I, uh, I just started putting some of those chapters and some of these thoughts I was going to in rhyme form. And I was going to try to come up with a 45 because I had done one at the end of 2012 with Breeze Bruin. Yeah. And I, it got a good response. That was my first return to music, but it was just a shot in the dark. I wasn't planning a comeback. And then I was like trying to do another 45 and before I knew it, I had like six or seven cuts. And I'm yeah, like, damn, is. which one am I gonna use? And then I was like, well, fuck, I'm, I'm halfway to an album. If I just focus on the whole growing up thing and, and the whole where am I supposed to be in life and the financials and the career, you know, I wanted to, you know, I got Haas on board. Yeah. I went back and got my man Al Sheed. I got Self on board and the track with Breeze and I said, I don't really need any more guests. Like right. this is my story. Uh, I got one last question for you. Okay. Uh, earlier we were talking, I wrote down the word happy. Mm -hmm. Are you happy now? Yes. What makes you happy now? Uh, because I'm, I found, my thing is this, if you could wake up and do what you love to do, like, like I ain't gonna lie and say sometimes I'm not happy. Yeah, for I, sure. some, some days I wake up and I'm like, fuck. It, you know, it's a constant grind in this business to stay afloat. Absolutely. It's very stressful especially as you get older, you know, and I have my up days and my down days, but looking at where I was five years ago, like not creating at all. Right. As long as I'm creating, I can't say I'm not happy. And that was my talk with the one and only Jay Zone. Uh, glad to have had him on the show. Um, we're inching towards our 50th episode, um, which I feel really awesome about, and I'm kind of great 
run a guest coming up. Um, really, really happy to um, to announce that the very next guest. Um, well, actually, I won't say who it is because um, you never know. Things get shuffled. I don't want to come out looking silly later, but I'm really excited about next week's show as well. Uh, thank you guys for all your support on the uh, weekly show. Thanks for all of the uh, iTunes ratings and reviews. Those are very much appreciated. Please do tell your friends, though, if they're into independent rap or rap in general. They want to know more about rappers and what their lives are like and what the creative day-to-day is and the ups and downs. Please tell them about Secret Skin. We need more Scandinavians and Principal Skinners and um, Skin Interceptor missiles um, and all of that sorts of thing. Um, I'm Open Mike Eagle. I'm going to be on the road soon again with Serengeti. We're going to be in uh, Chicago, Milwaukee, uh, Minneapolis, and Madison, Wisconsin coming up in a couple of weeks here in February. And like I said in the open as well, I'm going to have some some new music news, I believe, this week. So um, this episode comes out on Monday by, uh, by the middle of the week. Look out for some new music news. And then after that comes out, I'll be talking about that stuff a bit on next week's show, too. We're entering a very exciting time. Uh, get at JZone on Twitter. He's JZone. Don't tweet. Um, I'm Mike underscore Eagle on Twitter. Shout out to Infinite Guest. Uh, shout out to yourself for downloading and listening. Um, yeah. See you guys after that big football game. Peace.